When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, If you haven't yet and you like this show, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, If you support for uh, $5 a month, you get all the episodes the day that I record them. If not, and you're patient, unlike me, feel free to wait for their regular release date. Well, uh, today I have with me Dr. Aaron Preston. He's a professor of philosophy at Valparaiso University, and he took his PhD at USC in 2002 under Dallas Willard. He's written mainly on the history of analytic philosophy and the history of ethics in the 20th century. I'm super excited to have him on here. Aaron, uh, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Parker. So just uh, initially... A lot of people, a lot of Christians, at least I have Christians, non-Christians listen to the show, but a lot of people hear Dallas Willard and they think that's the spiritual formation guy. But you did right. your, your PhD in philosophy under him. Uh, that's right. How, in, in the philosophy world, you know, who, who is Dallas Willard? So Dallas um, mainly worked on the philosophy of Edmund Husserl mm-hmm. and the early phenomenological movement. And, um, you know, uh, Edmund Husserl... Uh, is sort of known as the father of phenomenology, but mm-hmm. the phenomenological movement took a strange turn um, sort of toward the end of Husserl's life and after his death. The early phenomenologists were all realist epistemologists, and mm-hmm. uh, Husserl himself was a, a, well, I mean, there's some debate about this, but on Dallas's yeah. view, uh, Husserl was a a realist in epistemology and a realist in metaphysics. Uh, and so Dallas thought Husserl was very important for establishing the sort of epistemology that he thought a Christian uh, should adopt. Yeah. And so, so Dallas worked mainly on um, interpreting Husserl um, and translating Husserl and applying Husserlian thought to a variety of, of uh, problems in contemporary philosophy. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I I know I, I first heard of Dallas Willard not as spiritual formation, but through I was studying apologetics and learning about Greg Bonson and, and learned that he had studied under a Dallas Willard and then also uh, J.P. Moreland, I believe, uh, right. studied under as well. And right. just this huge uh, uh, line of, of people came from him of, of whom you are one. So how did you get into philosophy? Well, I actually got into philosophy with Dallas Willard. Um, hmm. I was an undergraduate at USC, and I started off as a double major in classics and education. And after a year um, in education, I decided that that field was not for me and um, was 
looking for something else and uh, had some friends in a Christian group there who mentioned that there was this um, remarkable Christian professor on campus in the philosophy department and was kind of like a modern C.S. Lewis and <laughs> um, you should really take a class with him while you're here. And so I, in my sophomore year, I signed up for uh, a 400 level class on the British empiricists with Dallas Willard. Wow. <laughs> and I loved it. It was, it was just the best thing I'd ever taken. And um, Dallas was remarkable, uh, not only as a professor, but as a human being. And um, not only did I find the class um, amazingly interesting and illuminating, uh, but he helped me work through a number of theological issues that I was grappling with uh, back at that time in my life. And he showed me how philosophical thinking could be used to mm. work through um, theological conundrums that one might be dealing with. And, and I found it all so useful and Dallas so inspiring that I decided to um, add philosophy as my second major and ended up taking uh, most of my coursework with Dallas. And then wow. uh, when I graduated, I went off to the University of Edinburgh uh, to do a master's okay. in systematic theology there. And then I came back to USC to take my PhD under Dallas. Wow. So, yeah. That's awesome. I, I, hadn't, I had no idea that uh, he played such a major role in your life there. So just uh, we can we can leave um, some Dallas quick, but uh, I was just wondering, you know, so a lot of people know him as spiritual formation, you know, forming your character and your desires towards Christ and developing into that that person that he wants you to be. Did Dallas for I'm sure he probably did, but he, did he wed the two? Did he did he say philosophy could be used as a form of spiritual formation or were the two kind of separate categories well, for him? Uh, they were not separate categories for him. Um, he didn't do a lot of explicit teaching on his own views about the relationship between philosophy and mm -hmm. spiritual formation. But, I mean, he has said things, uh, this is in print, that he takes Plato's Republic to be a book about spiritual formation. Wow. Um, and he certainly thought that philosophy approached the right way could uh, help in in the Christian life. Um mostly in, in a cognitive fashion, sort of eliminating roadblocks and challenges and problems yeah. that, you know, hangups that people have uh, that maybe separate them from God or keep them feeling distant from God. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think that he, in his, in his personal life, you could see him fusing the two. Mm -hmm. and there was no clean line of separation between philosophical thought, theological thought, and then the implementation of the things that you believe to be true on the basis of that thinking yeah. in the Christian life. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I, I read uh, after he passed away a couple of years ago, I read that biography. I forgot what it's called. It just came out. Uh, and, Dallas Willard. By, yes, uh, yes. Gary yeah. Becoming uh, Dallas Willard. And I really like that. Just the guy was awesome. Just a legend. Yeah. God really used him. It's so cool to hear about, you know, his work in your own life. Cause you're the kind of guy I read about in the biography, you know, the, oh, like, yeah, yeah. his students and stuff like that. And, and here we go. So uh, with that in mind, you know, you've, I, I came into your work first. I was, uh, I love uh, Philosophia Christi, and I saw a review of Analytic Philosophy or an ad or something like that, a book that you've edited called uh, in Her Interpretive History. And I, I love anal analytic philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so I, I took a look at it, a lot of great essays in there. And then I learned a little bit more about you. So I reached out and wanted to talk about analytic philosophy. And you suggested that we kind of broaden our scope a little bit more to include uh, the, the disappearance of moral knowledge, which is a, a phrase from Dallas Willard 
and uh, and also personalism. And I know a right. little bit about personalism, but I'm interested to to hear from you. You know how the the three uh, kind of come together here. So if you could, what what is personalism? Sure. Um, well, let's see. If if you want me to talk about how the three come together, um, yeah. maybe I can sort of back up a little bit and please talk about. Um, analytic philosophy and, and the disappearance of moral knowledge. And then that will sort of give some background as to why I think personalism is worth paying some attention to okay. as well. If, if I could jump in real quick, just to plug sure. this book, right. The Disappearance of, of Moral Knowledge. It's a, a book by Dallas Willard, posthumously released by uh, three of his students, including yourself, That's um, right. who, who edited the final work and, and put it out there. It's a Routledge book. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so, um, the disappearance of moral knowledge is a phrase that Dallas used to describe the um, transition that has occurred in our culture, uh, our culture, which culture, American culture for sure, Western mm -hmm. culture more broadly, uh, over the course of the 20th century, um, where you had the, the major institutions of public life initially operating on the basis of a presumed body of moral knowledge. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was just sort of widely assumed that we knew certain things to be true morally um, and and that this was a, a basis for public life. And you could actually um, run in, an institution around these principles and you could transmit this knowledge through our educational institutions and so on. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, that perspective dropped away and we're now in a position where the major institutions of public life no longer operate on a presumption of um, of known moral facts. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's the, the disappearance of moral knowledge. That's what Dallas meant by it. He didn't mean that there's no one who has moral knowledge. He thought that plenty of individuals were in possession of some moral knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, but as a sort of sociological fact about uh, Western culture broadly construed, um, we'd moved from a position where we were operating on a basis of moral knowledge to a position where we we were not and no longer believed moral knowledge to be possible. Okay. Um, and so the book is kind of about that, but it focuses on on the contribution made to the disappearance of moral knowledge by philosophy and the analytic tradition. Yeah. So um, I got into to, uh, writing on the history of analytic philosophy um, kind of by surprise. It was not what I had planned to do as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. um, I actually ended up writing my dissertation on the history of analytic philosophy. And then my first book uh, was a revision of the, uh, of the dissertation. Yeah. So I got into the, the field um, back when the history of analytic philosophy as a field was, was really just sort of uh, beginning. And I got into it because I was really disturbed and sort of confounded by the differences in approach that I saw among my professors in the graduate program there at USC. And you know, I had been an undergraduate at USC, but I took really something like 90% of my coursework with Dallas. And, and yeah, wow. I, I hadn't really gotten around to a whole lot of the other faculty. So I hadn't seen a lot of what uh, was in fact the norm. Uh, which yeah. was the analytic approach to philosophy. And um, as a graduate student, I, I did come into contact with a broader range of the faculty and started to note strange, what I consider to be strange differences just in methodology and pedagogy and 
so on and so forth. And I wasn't the only one to know this. There were a number of people who were there to study with Dallas, uh, either because he was a Christian philosopher or in some cases simply because he was an expert in Husserl and phenomenology. Um, And folks who were coming into the program from the phenomenological perspective shared my sense that there was something strange and different uh, about the way the analytic professors, those who strongly identified as analytic, would would approach their subject matters. And there seemed to be this sort of language barrier where we would often fail to understand each other in our seminar discussions. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time scratching my head about this and trying to figure out where my analytically oriented professors were coming from. And um, to me, uh, a mode of understanding that comes very naturally is, is historical understanding. If I can go back to the beginnings of a movement and understand mm. why it originated, why it began, and how it developed, then um, I feel like I, I really understand where people who are coming out of that perspective uh, are coming from. So, so that's what I started to do. I started to dig into the historical roots of the analytic uh, tradition and... Um, began to form some conclusions about um, why it had developed and uh, why it had developed the way that it had. And, and that gave me a framework for thinking about where my more analytic oriented uh, professors were coming from. And, and that turned into my dissertation. Um, so long story short, the perspective that I developed on the history of analytic philosophy as a tradition Right. And so you Mm -hmm. say you love analytic philosophy. Well, there is a lot to love about contemporary analytic philosophy, particularly from within Christianity, because there are some really super top notch Christian analytic philosophers who are doing incredibly good work on really important topics. But when you zoom out from that very narrow perspective, the analytic tradition as a whole looks a lot less appealing, Mm. I think. I mean, you know, there was a a poll run back in 2012, 2013, the, the Phil uh, Papers uh, yeah. poll. And um, you know, something like only 14% of contemporary philosophers are theists. Yeah. Right? The overwhelming majority, somewhere up in the 70s, are atheists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this, this was a poll conducted mainly among analytic philosophers. And um, this is just one... I mean, this is not a surprise when you look at analytic philosophy as a historical tradition, because it's been incredibly hostile to um, non-naturalistic views in general and to religious views in particular throughout most of its history. You know, what really set analytic philosophy apart as a distinctive intellectual tradition in the early years was this positivistic aversion to metaphysics, which was justified by this strange um, metaphilosophical view that philosophy really was just the analysis of language and that in order for words to be meaningful or statements to be meaningful, they had to have some sort of um, empirical basis, right? So this uh, early sort of verificationist view um, of meaning was a part of the, uh, the original formative analytic identity um, yeah, And even though we have come very far from that position, you know, within the analytic tradition as it unfolded over the course of the 20th century and out into the 21st century, there are still um, tendencies in a naturalistic direction, in a scientistic direction, Definitely. which make it still, I think, very um, 
difficult soil for theistic thinkers to really bloom in. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So um, my, my listeners have heard a little bit about logical positivism before and the Vienna School. And so for those uh, who haven't heard or need a refresher, um, what, what Aaron's talking about is at the towards the inception of analytic philosophy, this tradition, there were these uh, initial you know, starters who, who said meaning has to if something's going to mean something, it has to be verified. It has to fit this verification principle, which then turned out to be self-defeating, uh, it seems like. Uh, over a couple different iterations, they kept on saying, no, here's the verification principle. No, here's the ver." And the problem was that the verification principle that they used, which they used to dismiss metaphysics, which, you know, theology is, uh, in order to dismiss metaphysics, they had this verification principle, which couldn't hold itself up. It couldn't be verified by itself. And so a lot of apologists today will point to the logical positivists and, and most apologetics books have to kick them around just a little bit. Because for so long, that was the, the dominant uh, theme, and they were just running ship on all metaphysics, including theology. And so, um, though that has been shown to be self-defeating, I think, uh, there's still that, that air of scientism um, and, right. and logical positivism so, still around. Yeah. Uh, so, so, just to say a little bit more about that, people didn't start really using the term analytic philosophy until mm. the, the 1930s. Uh, okay. You see, right around between 1930 and 1933, you see the first instances of the term. And when it was used, when it started to be used, it was used in such a way that it, it reached back to the turn of the 20th century and captured work being done by Moore and Russell mm -hmm. um, in their break from British idealism. Yep. And, and so this is where the idea that analytic philosophy was born in this revolt against idealism that was led yeah. by Moore and Russell, and that involved a turn toward meaning as the uh, subject matter of philosophy, mm -hmm. which is actually not accurate. I mean, Moore and, and, and the early Russell were robust metaphysicians, and whenever Moore talked about meaning, he didn't mean linguistic meaning. He was yeah. very clear about this, but he gets misinterpreted as the analytic tradition sort of picks up steam as a distinctive tradition in the 1930s. And people start using this label to carve off uh, a particular um, sort of canon, as it were, of, of philosophers and texts that, you know, they, they identify with and call the analytic philosophers and the analytic tradition. So, um, and it's it's not... I think a coincidence that 1930s was the, you know, the 1930s was the heyday of logical positivism. This is mm -hmm. when it really comes into its own, um, especially in English speaking countries to the influence of AJ Eyre. And um, so you've got the sort of retrospective designation of a particular tradition that up until the 1930s wouldn't have been called analytic philosophy, but then it starts getting called analytic philosophy. And up through the 60s or 70s, you've got this preoccupation with meaning, mm -hmm. but then Basically, what happened is, is folks began to realize that they didn't really understand what meaning was. And all of the, the main theories that, that had been at the heart of this claim that philosophy was just a list, linguistic analysis, uh, not only the, the positivist's verificationism, but the prior picture theory of meaning that yep. had been endorsed by the early Russell and Wittgenstein, and then you know the later theory of meaning as use and so forth, people... Um, came to realize that none of these really told the whole story when it came to meaning. And so you had people step away from the metaphilosophical position that philosophy just is linguistic analysis. And um, 
this is when philosophy of language as a distinctive subfield was was born. It's like, yeah. well, we need we need to inquire into the nature of language more deeply before we make any metaphilosophical claims. And that sort of took the restrictions off and people could get back to um, the full range of, of philosophical inquiries and metaphysics starts to come back on the scene and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but still, most of it is conducted within a broadly naturalistic worldview. Yeah. And, and this is what makes it hostile or at least um, you know, difficult for theistic thought to take off. And of course, you know, what happened was you had some folks who were so good at the kind of thinking that analytic philosophers valued, mm -hmm. um, who happened to be theists, folks like Alvin Plantinga and others, right? Who mm -hmm. were so good at doing that kind of thinking um, that the analytic philosophers could no longer deny these folks a place in, in the discipline. Uh, yeah. They were just too smart. Um, and they realized they couldn't dismiss them any longer by saying, well, your claims are meaningless or or whatever. So so Christians were able to make a little bit of a an inroad into the analytic tradition and that's worth celebrating, but mm -hmm. um it's also important not to lose sight of the bigger picture. Yeah. Now, connecting this to the disappearance of moral knowledge. Yeah. Well, Dr. Uh, Aaron, can I yeah. jump in with a clarification? Um I hope this doesn't take us too far afield, but so um phenomenology from from Husserl seems seems odd to me because I wrote it off as continental philosophy and I've kind of come through the full range of, you know, I like analytic, so I don't like those guys. And then going to, Oh, I like those guys. Cause they ask, they ask different questions, mm -hmm. uh, better questions, I think, but they do it in a way that's a little bit harder to understand to then coming uh, to, to some of your work and, uh, and the contributors to this, uh, this book saying that, you know, the early, uh, like I think Russell uh, liked uh, the early phenomenology and he, he was in conversation with Husserl and, and maybe even Frege. I'm not, I'm not sure if he was or not, but that phenomenology had a, a closer origin with analytic, the roots of analytic philosophy than I was aware of. Right. Can you, can you speak to that? Where does phenomenology yeah, fit I'll try. in? So phenomenology um, has to do with, uh, Husserl kind of thought of it as a as a preliminary sort of investigation that you had to conduct prior to doing philosophy in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And it basically was a matter of um, giving very detailed, accurate descriptions of the structure of conscious states, mm -hmm. the structure of these conscious states through which we uh, acquire knowledge. So, you know, one big problem in the history of epistemology and, well, epistemology broadly considered, nowadays there's a tendency to think of epistemology mainly in terms of what might be called criteriology, you know, setting uh -huh. out um, conditions for, uh, for, for having justified true belief, right, uh -huh. something like that. Um, but historically, um, you've, you've got a very sort of porous division between criteriology and issues that we would now think about as falling within the philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. um, what is the nature of consciousness? How does the mind actually get in touch with, um, with the objects of knowledge? What are those objects of knowledge? Are they just propositions or are they, you know, tables and chairs and cups and God right. and so on and so forth, right? You know, the things themselves. And, and the cry of the early phenomenal, phenomenological movement was back to the things themselves. The idea was you can get in touch with the things themselves. There doesn't have to be any mediation by language or by mental um, surrogates 
for right. the objects of knowledge. And so this, uh, the early phenomenological movement set itself uh, over against the representationalism of, say, British empiricism, of the Kantian tradition, right? This idea that uh, Dallas called it uh, Midas touch epistemology, that the huh. mind changes whatever it comes into contact with so that you only get um, your own representation of whatever there might be in the external world. Never the thing itself. Right, never the thing itself. Yeah. That was the heart of the early phenomenological movement. They wanted to, on the basis of painstaking analyses of the mm. internal structure of the conscious states that are involved in the acquisition of knowledge, they wanted to say, no, there is no inner representation that stands between the mind and the object, the external object of awareness. The external object actually is accessed through consciousness. It becomes um, a part, so to speak, of the act of thought, but not in an idealistic way. Okay. Um, but this idea that you can actually directly perceive um, external objects, not only physical ones, but you know, you, you can perceive universals, you can perceive perhaps um, spiritual entities uh, under the right conditions and the right sorts of uh, experiences. I mean, Husserl was, uh, was a Christian, believe it or not. Oh, wow. um, and he, yeah, so I mean, he was culturally Jewish, but he converted to Christianity and wow. he actually conceived of his work as service to the Logos. That's straight up from Dallas Willard's mouth. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so when I think of, of uh, Husserlian Hus mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. um, phenomenology, I, I always uh, I heard of it as like he, he wanted to get to a presuppositionless uh, understanding. And I think it makes more sense from what you're saying. It's, he wanted unmediated reality. Right. And, and I could see why Dallas uh, would, would like that. It's interesting to me because it seems like, you know, Kant had this distinction. We just did a, an episode on Kant where there's the, the phenomena and the noumena. And it seems like Husserl is saying, well, don't worry about the noumena. Don't, don't worry that there's this unmediated world that we can't get to. Just stick with the phenomena. We'll call it phenomenolo phenomenology. And then we'll study that. And I think the other people to do that were the idealists, the post-Kantian idealists. But they said... Instead of getting to the thing in itself, it's just all his mind anyways. Right. So how did he differ? I know he differed, but how did he make that move when they both focused on the phenomena? Well, so one of the distinctive features of, of early phenomenology is that um, it was not driven by a grand or sorry, metaphysical system. Right. Okay. So the idealists, in order to make this counterintuitive claim that everything that exists is really mental, mm -hmm. right? It's really uh, ideational in nature. Um, y they already have to have this grand metaphysical picture of reality in place. Okay. And uh, sometimes people will say that, that early phenomenology um, is non-metaphysical, which mm -hmm. is a half-truth. It, it's true that it's not driven by a grand me metaphysical scheme like idealism. Um, but of course, when you're thinking deeply about the structure of consciousness, you're making metaphysical claims. So you're doing sort of fine-grained, detailed, ontological work on the structure of consciousness. Um, and that, that is metaphysics of a sort. Um, so, so one of the main differences between Husserl and the early phenomenologists and the 
uh, idealists, the post-Kantian idealists, mm -hmm. is that there just isn't this grand metaphysical picture um, or you know, presupposition about the ultimate nature of reality in the background. Husserl's focus is almost entirely on what is given in experience mm -hmm. and how is it given, right? Yeah. And then let's back up a moment and see if we can put experience itself in the place of the given and figure out exactly what the inner structures of consciousness are. Okay. Which enable it to allow an external reality to pass through. So there's a sense in which um, phenomenology lends itself to uh, a much more, well, early phenomenology at least, to a much more um, sort of inductive approach to knowledge. Yeah. Um, and and if you're going to build a metaphysical picture of the world, um, you're going to have to do that step by step from the ground up. You can't start with this grand scheme in the background and then make a blanket declaration about the nature of all things on okay. the basis of, well, you know, I, I think that my coffee cup over here is uh, an idea in the mind of God or yeah. the absolute or whatever. Yeah, that's that's so helpful. That That's really great. So they both were coming to the phenomena. That, that sounds good. Okay. And they had to because of Kant and his Copernican revolution. Which, which he said himself, which I feel like you should, probably shouldn't say that about your own theory. But um, the, the idealist had the, all this presuppositional baggage of, yeah, idealism behind them. Mm -hmm. And the phenomenologist wanted to focus more on the actual, what, what are we looking at? What are we talking about? And yet you're saying that they still had a kind of an implicit uh, metaphysics going on. It just wasn't this huge constructive. It wasn't this huge um, sort of worldview. I yeah. suppose you might say. Um, but there was still, yeah, I mean, if, if you are examining the nature of consciousness, if you are claiming to make, let's just say, introspective observations about the features of the conscious state that you're in when you're, well, staring at a computer screen, for example, yeah. um, and you, you make all these observations about the, uh, the different components of that feature of, or of, of that entire act of consciousness, um, well, you're, you're making claims that yeah. are ontological in nature, but yeah. you're not coming up with this sweeping worldview-ish uh, metaphysical picture of the ultimate nature of reality. Okay. And you know, there's nothing about Husserl's view, I think, that, that would be opposed to working in the direction of something like that, but you've got to do it step by step. You've got to work from the ground up, and you've got to start kind of from the inside out, so to speak. You've got to say what it is about, about consciousness that enables you to get in touch with these external realities in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, thinking of Kant and the, the noumenal phenomenal distinction, mm -hmm. well, why did he make that distinction in the first place? It's because he granted too much weight to Hume's analysis of yeah. consciousness. Right, mm. Hume was the one who woke Kant from his dogmatic slumbers. Right, but you, um, and, and so the idea is that all the things that, Hume would say are not given an experience, but seem to be presupposed by all experience come in as these, um, you know, the conditions for the possibility of, and yeah. that gets us the sort of idea of the, well, there, there must be um, a, a, a way of, of imposing these um, features that aren't given an experience upon them. And this is the action of the mind. And, and then the story of the noumenal versus the, the phenomenal sort of falls out of that. Yeah, uh, that picture, right? Uh, but Husserl's just going to go right back to Hume and say, no, Hume was simply wrong about the nature of consciousness. Consciousness is not atomistic, the way Hume tends to think. Mm -hmm. Consciousness comes in um, complex 
holistic states and and you can dig into them and and sort of see the distinct parts but they're not separable in the way that Hume tends to think that they are mm-hmm. so so in a way Husserl's going to go back to um the the time before Kant and and tell us where Kant made a wrong turn in accepting too much from Hume and the British empiricists and the the, the British philosophical tradition has a peculiar blindness when it comes to the nature of consciousness. Yeah. Um, it's really puzzling. I mean, not only do you have the errors made by Locke and Hume about the, about what's actually given in consciousness um, and, and claims about things being atomistic and separable from one another and so on. This was like, no, these aren't just examine the way they hang together in consciousness. You'll see that certain things aren't separable and, and other things are and, Hume doesn't do any of that work. Um, but then you get all the way up to the 20th century and G.E. Moore, and this is, this is the point that you were talking about earlier, these connections between the early analytic movement and the early phenomenological movement. You know, um, folks were reading um, members of the Brentano school. Right. Yeah. So Brentano was Husserl's teacher, and there were were lots of folks of Husserl's generation, Brentano students, who were sort of moving in similar directions uh, with with Husserl. These were all um, folks who were more or less phenomenological in their orientation. And Brentano, um, Brentano was known for his logic. Is that right? Well, so I'm more inclined to think that he's known for his descriptive psychology, which okay. gives rise to this phenomenological method that okay. um that, that makes that sense why his students would focus on the phenomenological then right and and so in a logical um, manner too yeah right right i mean husserl started off as a mathematician and did his oh, early wow. work on on logic and how, how mathematical and logical knowledge was was possible and so you know um th- there is a connection there uh, and, yeah. you know, there's a reason why Dallas, his first academic book was called Logic and the Objectivity of Knowledge. It's about yeah. how Husserl sort of worked his way from thinking about the epistemology of mathematics and logic to thinking about broader uh, epistemic issues. Yeah. But um, at Cambridge, they were reading folks from the Brentano School. And G.E. Moore tried to wrap his mind around uh, the, the kinds of things that Husserl was saying and and. Uh, Russell read the logical investigations when they first came out and apparently didn't do a whole lot with them. Um, but then you've got more saying things like, well, you know, consciousness seems to be um, sort of transparent, right? You just, you, you, you try to look for it and you end up looking right through it and you can't really yeah. see uh, consciousness itself. And meanwhile, you've got Husserl right at the same time over here in the logical investigation saying, well, look, here are like half a dozen or more key features of consciousness. And if you just introspect carefully enough, you can see that these are features of, of um, many or all conscious states and more just can't see it. It's just the strangest thing. Um, this is part of what, sets the analytic tradition up for moving in a naturalistic direction. Yeah. I was just thinking, imagine if he got it, imagine if he got Husserl's claim and where would we be? So it seems like, you know, consciousness kind of went underground until uh, John Searle started working on it and it Mm -hmm. became okay again, because cognitive science, he kind of fused the two or at least made consciousness uh, uh, an okay thing to talk about. But imagine where we'd be at in philosophy if that didn't happen. It's like we took this massive detour for about, I don't know, 70 or 80 years. Yeah. And now we're, you know, in, in the 
in the 70s and 80s, we started coming back to it. And now, you know, cognitive science and philosophy of mind are very robust fields, still dominated by naturalistic thinkers, but you've got leading folks like David Chalmers who are very um, open to non-naturalistic, or at least what traditionally have been construed as non-naturalistic alternatives. I mean, Chalmers has even suggested that we need to change our understanding of what science is to accommodate consciousness. Right. And, and so, I mean, you might still call that naturalism, but that's radically changing the meaning of naturalism. Meaning yeah, of and the starting points and everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's interesting. And um, I mean, it's it's gratifying to see that we're finally getting back on track, but then you think about the history and it's like, wow, you know, well, eight and, decades and, lost <laughs> and all these sharp thinkers you know uh some of the stuff you're, you're describing in husserl i see a little bit maybe in david's i really like davidson mm -hmm. uh, i like a lot of his tools that he uses i don't like all of his conclusions and stuff but you know, he talks about the holism of the mental he talks about getting away from uh representations because in representational models he finds that gap that skepticism could sneak in so we need mm -hmm. to have direct awareness and it's like if, if Davidson already had, you know, 40 years of people working on Husserl right. and kind of stuff and, and Husserl talks about, I think he talks about transcendental arguments a little bit where he talks, he looks for the necessary conditions of our givens. Is that, is that right? Or is that not Husserl? Well, so, so Husserl does talk about um, transcendence in a number of different senses. Okay. It's, not usually, I mean, there might be a place where he talks about transcendental arguments in the usual sense. I don't know. Husserl wrote a ton, and most of it hasn't been translated. Yeah, I know, I've seen that, yeah. And so forth, right? Um, but, and, and I'm I'm by no means a Husserl expert. I mean, um, the, the one student of Dallas's that I know of who who has become a Husserl expert and a world-class Husserl expert is, is Walter Hopp at Boston University. Okay. And, um, and so we should be talking to Walter if we wanted more detail about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, um, I've really been... No, that's, that's fine, uh, but, but I'm... What I do know is that usually when Husserl talks about transcendence, it just means getting beyond the confines of your own mind and contacting the the external. Okay. So it's not this this sort of um, argument about what the hidden necessary conditions of our current experience might be. Okay. Husserl is always very committed to um, bringing objects into consciousness. And if you can't do that, um, it's not entirely clear what their epistemic status is. I mean, you can make, you can make speculative arguments and so forth, but, but he's, he usually is worried about that. And it certainly doesn't meet his epistemic ideal, which is bringing something to full direct awareness. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we, we had a little bit of a, a divergent there. That was super Sorry. helpful. It really helped oh, me a lot. Uh, we can, I think you were, you were just getting into the disappearance of moral knowledge. Right. And so, um, unfortunately, the analytic tradition uh, played a significant role in the disappearance of moral knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not really clear that analytic philosophy was a major sort of causal factor here um, because, well, for one thing, you've got to ask yourself just how much of an influence philosophy has on culture generally yeah. and right. uh, all these academic philosophy. And, you know, in, in the, in the long term, you can say, well, philosophy has a massive influence on culture because these are the ideas that inspire people for you know, 
years and years and years. I mean, did Plato have a, an impact on culture? Of course he did, right? Yeah. But um, in contemporary Western culture, it's not like people are going to the philosophers to ask what their opinion is, right? right. Uh, we're, we're not the folks that people look to when they're trying to make policy or law or right. for the most part. Um, and so um, in, in the American context, for sure, um, academic philosophy hasn't had uh, a, a massive cultural impact. Um, and so we don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be construed as saying that the analytic tradition is somehow the cause of the disappearance of moral knowledge. What happened was there were cultural forces at work leading to the disappearance of moral knowledge. Um, and the analytic tradition, in my mind, represents academic philosophy's capitulation to those forces. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah. where you, you might think that philosophers from other more traditional schools of thought would have pushed back against these forces. And, and they did. Uh, the fact is the analytic tradition more or less capitulated and said, we're just going to go with the flow here. And the flow yeah. was in the direction of a kind of scientism. We said that, you know, if, if uh, it can't be known by means of science, it can't be known at all. Yeah. And um, the idea was, well, moral knowledge is one of those things that can't be known. Via, yeah. via the empirical sciences it can't be had by, via the empirical sciences. And so um, you see this emerging in the university uh, between you know, the last quarter of the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th. There's a really important book written by a historian named Julie Rubin about um, this transformation in moral education in the American colleges and universities at this time. It's called... Um, the Making of the Modern University. And Dallas oh, yeah. loved that book. Yeah. Uh, and he, he would talk about it wherever he went. Okay. Um, but you had, these, you had lots of forces in culture pushing in the direction of more scientific training for people at, at the university level. And what that did was it disrupted the traditional curriculum, which was oriented toward uh, moral and spiritual ends. Uh, basically, it was oriented toward giving people a... a overarching worldview that enabled them to see all of knowledge oriented toward uh, the kinds of moral and spiritual ends that we might um, put under the label spiritual formation. And this would um, be like liberal arts kind of uh, uh, humanities and stuff like that? That Kind of. I mean, back in the, in the late 19th century, you didn't really have, uh, you had a set curriculum at the university. You didn't okay. have majors and electives. You didn't. Um, and, and so the idea here was that, the knowledge that was acquired in all of these different disciplines, including the sciences, was ultimately to be um, combined or integrated. So yeah. this, this, uh, uh, the idea of faith and uh, the integration of faith and learning or the integration of faith and knowledge, which is still alive in, in many Christian institutions of higher education today, that was simply the norm for yeah. university education. Okay. We would integrate faith with knowledge, and you would then try to see how all of the findings of the, the various fields, humanities disciplines, scientific disciplines, fit together into an overarching worldview that included God and his purposes for humankind. Right? And because you have that at the top, you're also forced to integrate the different disciplines as well, because they're all right. aiming up towards that. Yeah, Exactly. So that was sort of the norm in the late 19th century. But as there was more and more pressure from society to have more scientifically trained 
people coming out of our universities. Um, you basically had a battle over the curriculum where, okay, if we're going to introduce more scientific training, we've got to exclude some other things that we're doing. And what was excluded were the courses where people were um, forced <laughs> to bring it all together, right? Yeah. Or where they were given the opportunity, if you want to put a, a different light on it, to bring it all together, right? Yeah. Um, and this, this allowed for... Um, and this is where the division between general education and your major comes into play. Because yeah. the idea was, well, let's let's retain a little core uh, curriculum that's still going to try to serve these traditional moral aims of higher education. Um, and we'll call that general education because it's supposed to be for everybody regardless of their specialization. Right? It's supposed yeah. to be general. And then we'll allow people to gener to uh, specialize and uh, we'll encourage them to specialize in scientific fields so that society gets more of what it wants, the benefits of modern science in the form of you know, technologies and so forth. Yeah. So, so you have this turn occurring and uh, there were a variety of, of um, attempts made to sort of hold on to the original moral aim of higher education. But ultimately, these efforts failed. And in the 1930s, and they actually tried to turn moral education over to the sciences for a while. Mm. But then there was a sort of uh, correlative battle about the nature of science and, and whether science had any space within it to wow. deal with evaluative claims or value judgments. And, yeah. and there were some folks who thought, yes, we do. But ultimately, the folks who said, no, science must be value-free. Uh, there is this fact-value distinction. And yeah. uh, we, we must abide by it. They won out. And at that point, um, the task of moral education gets handed over to humanities disciplines, not including philosophy. Hmm. Now, philosophy had been one of the major players in the 19th century. It was moral philosophy and natural theology that were the two areas that were responsible for bringing everything together and integrating faith and knowledge and showing how, how all that we knew about the world fit together into um, a, a picture of the world that was ultimately oriented toward moral and spiritual perfection. Okay. Right. Wow. Um, but philosophy uh, lost its place and then it was it scrambled for uh, to find a different place. And the place it ultimately found was we are going to do the analysis of meaning, yeah. analysis of language. Right? So the anal analytic philosophy really comes out of that context where philosophy is trying to figure out how it's going to survive in this new scientific world that is emerging all around it and that has um, divested it of its, of its traditional purpose and has refused to give it a place in the university where it can do what it traditionally was, was aimed at doing. Yeah. And... Um, what philosophy found to do was analyze language and it sort of siloed itself off and became analytic philosophy at this point. Yeah. Moral education is handed over to the humanists who begin to pursue the task of moral education on totally emotive grounds. Hmm. So no, and this fit precisely with what was going on in philosophy at the time. This was the heyday of logical positivism and the emotivist theory of ethics, right? Yeah. Of, of ethical language, where ethical language, moral language is, is just about expressing emotion. And yeah. that fit perfectly with what the humanists were doing. Wow. And we still see the effects of that on culture today. This idea that your values are just how you feel about right. the world, that kind of thing. 
That's it's so sad to hear the the philosophical portion there that you turn from this grand discipline where your job is to unify and and point to God and to show how yeah everything every everything has this moral component and it's the, the component is that way because of God and His creation to then we're just going to look at meaning and then right. you can it makes sense when you look at it through that lens because that's why everyone's spinning their wheels. And they're all very sharp philosophers, but they're going in so deep on such a small topic. And then they leave the the most important one, the moral one that happens every day when you bump into someone to to someone else to say it's a motive that it also makes sense of what C.S. Lewis wrote about in the abolition of man. Yes. Where you see that turn inward. It's, you know, it's not sublime. The waterfall is not sublime. It's just, I feel sublime when I look at it. Right. Exactly. So, so that was sort of the beginning of the end for moral knowledge in our culture okay. um, and the disappearance of moral knowledge as an institutional and cultural phenomenon um, really takes off from that point. Hmm. Um, because as word began to spread that there is no cognitive basis for our moral claims and as generation upon generation of university educated students were, were um, fed this message yeah. uh, it just became a cultural presupposition and um you know uh, we we've been doing these um annual meetings uh, around the book the disappearance of moral knowledge we call moral knowledge symposia so mm-hmm. something that dallas's family uh who's still running his his ministry um they've committed themselves to uh supporting what they're calling the moral knowledge initiative where either one of the things they're doing is they're having these annual symposia. And uh, the, the one that we had most recently this past February, um, you know, there was a, a wonderful talk given um, uh, about how this idea has sort of trickled down into the common core curriculum that is, is fed to elementary school students yeah. and middle school students. And this idea, the idea that, that, that the emotivism idea. Yeah, in, in the form of the uh, distinction between fact and opinion. Yeah. The idea will be, um, well, you know, there are facts and well, what are the facts? Well, they're empirical things yeah. and then everything else, they don't put it in, in these terms, but if right. you, if you trace the examples, I think it was Jim Taylor from, uh, from Westmont gave, gave a talk on this. Um, and if, if you look at the examples they give of fact and, and opinion, every time something involved involving a value judgment comes up, that's always put in the opinion category. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've wrestled with some of this myself um, through my own education and growing up and, and, you know, beauty is still one that I still have to wrestle with. I know it, you know, as a Christian, I think, yeah, there's objective standards of beauty, but there's still there. I still have a hard time with that. I'm still working through that, you know, my spiritual formation and my edification, but, but thinking through moral judgments as a kid and growing up and thinking, yeah, that I, I fit in that category where I thought, yeah, there's yeah. facts out there, but then, how are we going to adjudicate between what I think is right and what you think is right? And mm-hmm. having to come full circle and say, no, there are, or having to, to turn back around and say, there are moral truths and we know them. And well, how do we know them? We can debate on that, but there are moral truths and you know it right. and you can't live in, in a way that uh, acknowledges your philosophy. If you're a motivist, you, you won't live that way. You can't live that way in this world. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hard one for me to have to like, root it's out tough. of there. It's tough. And, you know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of good intention behind this. I sure. mean, one of, one, of the, one of the things that, a conclusion that I've come to, 
as I've looked more and more into the history and gotten beyond just the history of philosophy as a sort of unfolding intellectual dialogue and looked mm -hmm. more at the cultural settings in which this took place, it's pretty clear to me that logical positivism, say, and I suppose to a certain extent this might apply more generally to um, scientific thinking, because it took a lot of forms in the early 20th century. I mean, pragmatism was scientific sure. in a way, yeah, uh, uh, in, in a less uh, stringent way than than positivism. Positivism yeah. is perhaps the most stringent form that this ever took. Um, but but these folks were all trying to escape a cultural, moral, and religious tradition that had become stifling. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it is. Uh, we, as Christians, we have to admit that uh, Christian culture has, uh, at various times in history, um, become all too unchristian, yeah, <laughs> and uh, right. has, has become, um, you know, a very um, well, almost sort of legalistic and Pharisaical uh, sort of sort of religion. And and when that distributes itself through a culture, the culture becomes very unpleasant to live yeah. in, right? Yeah. And and so this is what the, the the scientism of um, the late 19th and early 20th century and, and the idea that we could maybe base life upon this standard of knowledge rather than the traditional um, philosophical and religious basis. It was really an attempt to get away from what had become a, a stifling uh, sort of pharisaical legalism um, in, in many people's minds. That's so, that's so interesting to think through because coming at it, myself looking back and I'm like, wow, there was a world, you know, researching uh, Herman Bovink and think, wow, they taught systematic theology in universities and well, holy cow. And for me, it's like, wow, I feel stifled by the, the secularism that's overbearing. Mm -hmm. um, but they probably felt that way about, you know, fundamentalism in the early right. 1900s. Um, you know, evangelicals felt that way. That's why they became evangelicals uh, mm -hmm. between the liberal and the fundamentalist uh uh, mm -hmm. debate uh, and and so then they want to be culturally affirming yet still orthodox in their theology and right. I, that's why I love being an evangelical in that sense not in mm -hmm. the uh, the voter sense right, but, right. Um, which is wild but so that's that's really interesting I think that's a really great point because uh, a lot of times as apologists or philosophers or Christians um, uh, on the lay level we look at the philosophers as the bad guys and these were the mm -hmm. guys who had us in mind and they were trying to shut us down and they wanted logical positivism and, and even postmodernism. it's coming at us. And it's just interesting to look at their historical context and say what they were right. doing. You don't have to agree with them and you could still, you know, critique them for sure. But I, I really like that, that you brought that historical aspect into it. Good. I'm, I'm glad you found that illuminating. Yeah. So in any case, um, you've got the disappearance of moral knowledge, um, really sort of taking on uh, steam in the in the 1930s and and using the university as a as a sort of launching pad and, and that's really how it gets its grip on culture um, personalism yeah Can please say something about that at this yeah, point yeah I, I see so I see personalism as being on the other side of the disappearance of moral knowledge it was right at the mid point of the 20th century that personalism, which at that time was a fairly well-represented view in mm. academic philosophy, um, was, I, I don't think it's too much to say, it, it, was, it was a candidate for being the most powerful force for good 
in the Western world at that wow. time. Um, personalism is a philosophical tradition that goes back several hundred years. It was initially a theological response to Spinoza and Hegel. Okay. Um, it, it originated out of concern that their monistic metaphysical views uh, of God and reality um, didn't do sufficient justice to the personhood of God. Yeah. So that was the initial concern. And, and over time, the concern shifted away from establishing the personhood of God to establishing the personhood of finite persons, especially human beings. So the idea was that if you are a Spinozist or a Hegelian, um, you are ultimately going to have to treat finite persons as somehow unreal. We're just parts of the larger whole. Yeah. Right. And so our status as individuals, as um, the sort of thing that Aristotle would have called a substance, right? That's not a, that's not really part of what we are. We're really intrinsically parts of, of these larger cosmic holes and Lots of folks thought this doesn't do justice to our significance as persons. And so they tried to find a way to um, do justice to our status as persons and our moral significance as persons. And um, the fact of free agency, which was for most of these folks, the heart of personhood was being a, a rational agent capable of self-direction. And you've got lots of folks within the broader Hegelian tradition who tried to um, be what they called personal idealists. So yeah. they held on to idealism and they um, wanted to emphasize the significance of finite personhood within that tradition. And then you had a lot of folks who thought that it couldn't be done within the scope of Hegelianism. So they started uh, to pursue this, this personalistic interest in conjunction with different metaphysical systems or sometimes without any real commitment to a metaphysical mm. system. So you have uh, in you know, continental Europe, you've got existentialists who are personalists. You've got um, phenomenologists who were personalists. Max Shaler, who was one of Husserl's students, yeah. uh, was one of the most important contributors to one stream of the personalist tradition. Um, he... Uh, his version of personalism inspired Pope John Paul II, who was okay. a personalist. Huh. Um, and so, so you've got uh, phenomenolo phenomenological personalists, you've got um, existentialist personalists, you've got Thomistic personalists. Jacques uh, Maritain was a, a Thomist, a Catholic thinker, a Thomist, um, and, and a personalist. Uh, and then in America, um, you've got a, a distinctive personalistic school of thought. And this is, this is the school that usually is most closely associated with the term personalism as opposed to personal idealism. And this is a school of thought that begins with Borden Parker Bound at Boston university. Yeah. The, Boston per personalism. Boston personalism. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of his students, Ralph Tyler Flewelling came out and founded the philosophy department at USC. Oh, wow. And so, um, both uh, Boston University and USC were bastions of Boston personalism. And then there was a distinct variant of personalism um, endorsed by a fellow named Howison. And he was one of the early members of the philosophy department at UC Berkeley. 
And so on the West Coast, you had these, you know, sort of, you had the Southern California personalists who were basically Boston personalists, and you had the, the Berkeley personalists um, uh, who've, I don't know that Howison really developed much of a following, uh, but uh, but Bound really did. He had a lot of committed disciples, so to speak, who went out and spread uh, his version of personalism, and um, and USC remained a, a strongly personalistic department through the 1960s when Dallas arrived, and then it started to transform itself to an analytic department. And you know, okay. it used to publish a journal called the Personalist. It was wow. the flagship journal of personalism. And in 1980, that journal was renamed Pacific Philosophical Quarterly. Hmm. So, wow. yeah, yeah. Oh, and that, yeah. That's, that to me is, is the, uh, the sort of final nail in the coffin of personalism uh, yeah. at USC. Um, but at Boston, the personalist tradition persisted um, up until about the same time, maybe a little longer. Uh, but in, in the 1950s, um, a person who would become the most famous American personalist attended Boston University and earned a PhD in philosophical theology um, under Edgar Sheffield Brightman, who had been one of Bound's students. And um, that person was Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And who then took his personalism out into the streets and did amazing things. Uh, just a decade prior, over in Europe, the personalists were the ones who managed to get the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, wow. uh, by the UN uh, sort of written and signed off on by everybody. Yeah. So this is why I'm inclined to say the personalists were the most powerful force for good in the Western world in the middle of the 20th century. You've got the human rights movement in Europe, post-World War II, and they'd already been talking about this for decades. Just after World War II, you know, people were really ready to get on board with this mm -hmm. idea of universal human rights. Yeah. And then in the United States, you've got the civil rights movement, a large segment of which was driven by personalistic thinkers. King was not the only one, uh, not the only Boston trained leader in the civil rights movement. And uh, so you, uh, here you've got analytic philosophy withdrawing yeah. into its little silo um, sort of capitulating to the scientific forces of 20th century Western culture, uh, affirming the idea that there's no moral knowledge to be had. And meanwhile, the personalists are out changing the world yeah. on the basis of moral knowledge that they really believe they had. Yeah. And yet by 1980, most people don't even know personalism existed. Yeah, seriously. So my, my grandpa uh, went to Boston college mm. um, or is it, that's where well, King there, went. There is a Boston College, but there's also a Boston University. Okay, he went so to Boston. Boston University. He went to university. Yeah, yeah, okay. because the same one as King. And um, you know, I, I didn't hear much from him about personalism, but I was young at the time. But um, the the first thing I I never even heard of personalism. I heard of uh, personal idealism before I heard of personalism. And then I then I would hear every now and then I'd hear about you know Martin Luther King and they they call it African American personalism and stuff mm -hmm. like that but didn't really know it was a philosophical tradition until I was listening to um, one of uh, Dr King's uh, uh, sermons messages here at TED's and he he says some people call us Marxists but you know Marx was a, a young Hegelian he was a, a materialistic Hegelian and we we don't believe that and we we hold more to this and I was like he's going into philosophy what I love this stuff holy mm -hmm. cow. And then studying um, Cornelius Van Til and a little bit of his work and guys like Lane Tipton who've worked on him, then he brings up 
Boston personalism and personalism in general because Van Til was also reacting against idealism and personalism of his time. And it really was influential in his own uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And so then you know, this back door, I started discovering there's this whole thing called personalism where they focus on the person first. And, right. and that's what's fundamental is our personhood. And then I would go and see it a little bit in the analytic tradition with Strawson maybe, or Davidson talked a little bit about persons, but it, it was more naturalistic, like you said. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, where's people it always been? point to Strawson um, and his paper persons, but really he's more interested in the way we talk and think about ourselves as persons. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. want to make robustly metaphysical claims. And one of the things that I have tried to argue for in, in some of my recent work is that um, having a strong uh, metaphysical base for your concept of personhood really has a, a profound practical impact on what you can do ethically with the mm. concept of a person. Right. You know, I mean, most everyone understands that the concept of a person is an important ethical concept. Yeah. But without a very robust metaphys uh, metaphysical base for for our talk about persons as ethical beings, um, it's very easy to just sort of get get the ethical significance of personhood shoved aside. For example, John Rawls has passages where he says, well, yes, we all know, you know personhood is very important, but um, really what this is is just a concept that um, best expresses how those of us who live in liberal democratic societies understand ourselves. Yeah. So it's just a kind of a cultural construct, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But folks like King and the European personalists uh, wanted to say, no, um, it's more than just a cultural construct. This is what we are by nature. And of course, most of the personalists were also theists. And so they could blend this very easily with their idea that, you know, all of us were made in the image of God and, and what it means to be an image bearer of God is to be a person. Yeah. Um, and that this is, this is human nature and it, it applies universally to all of us and it has little to do with what culture you're from. So, yeah. I've seen I've seen a little bit in in like Roger Scruton's work uh, and a lot of people, you know, kind of poo poo him and maybe he's not a serious philosopher, but he I like Roger Scruton. I actually had the opportunity to meet him once. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And he was uh, I, one of those r rare people who just has the most expansive mind and expansive <laughs> learning. I mean, it's just very, a very impressive individual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Well, so he he focuses on on persons first, and and his his view of reality is a little bit weird. He's a he's a dualist, but he's like a cognitive dualist. And he doesn't. I don't really think he answers the question, but he he focuses on on self consciousness uh, and and persons, and it's it's really interesting to me. I'm I'm hoping that this kind of picks back up in philosophy. The, the idea of self-consciousness and person, but it it seems to us Christians like, well, yeah, we're the image of God. That's fundamentally, you know, that's what makes us important. And I've seen it, I've seen it worked out, not worked out completely, but in theology, I've seen the discussion of, hey, look, don't make faculties uh, the the criteria for personhood, because then you have persons who don't have their capacity, their, they have cognitive uh, malfunctions. Now they're not persons anymore. Is that what you're going to say? So the theological debate I've seen a little bit more healthy on this aspect, but I haven't seen a whole ton of it in philosophy, like like you've been describing. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? How do we bring back this conversation of, of personalism 
into a broader uh, cultural context that doesn't want to talk about Imago Day stuff? Yeah, I don't really know. Um, it's something I've puzzled over. Um, I've got a, a couple of like-minded colleagues. Uh, we've talked about maybe trying to start a society, Society for Analytic Personalism. So perhaps wow. we'll, we'll do that. Because I think that, you know, um, analytic philosophers really are the sharpest thinkers in yeah. the university today. And there are a number of folks who work in the philosophy of mind who um, are, are more than willing to endorse a robust metaphysic of the person. Yeah. Um, what's significant about personalism as a historical school of thought is that it wants to then arrange the discipline of philosophy around that. And, and uh, they want you know, personhood to shape our metaphilosophy. Uh, yeah. And so that's where I think it could really have a significant disciplinary impact. But in any case, I mean, we, in order for personalism to have um, some sort of uh, resurgence, we would have to break away from thinking in terms of the little uh, sort of balkanized sub-disciplines. Yeah. Um, it can't be just philosophy of mind, say, right? I mean, this is where you're going to find the folks who are willing to endorse a robust metaphysical perspective on what it is to be a person. Um, but then are we willing to take that view and start marching that out in the direction of what should norms of practice be for the discipline of philosophy as a whole? Yeah. What should ethics look like if we really took this concept of personhood seriously and treated it as an item of knowledge? So, you know, that's, that's a, a bigger question yeah. than I can, than I can answer. It would just take a lot of people getting on board with the idea. One of the really important observations that Dallas makes in chapter one of the disappearance of moral knowledge is that you've got these two different kinds of historical change. Sometimes historical change is based upon um, uh, um, some sort of genuine discovery or demonstration a rational demonstration that what we have been believing is false and this is the truth and we ought to all believe this. And so, you know, uh, that message is disseminated through culture and people get on board with it and you move forward. So you have these, you know, rational um, changes, but more often than not, you've got these not quite rational changes um, where, you know, reasons and evidence might play some sort of role, but lots of other forces play a role too. Um, fashion plays a role, um, wanting to fit in, um, yeah. cultural authority fit, you know, plays a role. He calls this um, following an older historian uh, by the name of Leckie, zeitgeist change. Yeah, zeitgeist change. Yeah, and Charles Taylor talks about you know the social imaginary and right, right. The invention of a train, people stop going to church because they can go see their relatives down the road, and it wasn't necessarily they're all reading you know whoever. Right. And and so these these kinds of shifts they're they're hard to predict, uh, they're hard to understand once they've happened. They're very complex, right? All the mm -hmm. causal mechanisms involved, what actually occurred to make the change happen, um, and and the idea of trying to orchestrate one, um, well, I mean, first of all, it makes you feel a little sinister. Um, <laughs> so right. It's like, I wouldn't even want to try, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but even if you had the will to try, um, you, you probably couldn't do it. It's mm. something that has to take shape organically. Yeah. And the most any one of us can do is um, to represent our views in good faith and try to get the word out. And if it ends up creating a stir and people get on board with it and, uh, zeitgeist change is is uh is is 
instigated, well, you know, great. Or at least so long as what you have is actually truth. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, I I don't I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet or anything like that. But it, <laughs> it seems like now today we we're very 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 self conscious self consciously aware of justice issues, and right. I think it's it's ripe for this kind of stuff. You know, what do you mean by justice? Well, where where sure. what are you grounding that in? Um, yes, I, I believe that that what what happened was unjust, but not if your view of the world's right. Not mm-hmm. if if they're not fundamentally a person made in the image of God, then it's right. just matter in motion. You know, like I I know you don't believe that because of your actions. Right. So we we need it. You know, we need this undergirding. It's true, and and, and this is really. I mean, the events of this past summer have really brought home the significance of philosophy and the disappearance of moral knowledge to a broader society um, because, you know, the critical social justice theory, as mm-hmm. some people are now calling it, um, that has been launched into the public mind through the events following, you know, the, the death of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the sort of thing that takes hold of people's minds as a substitute for genuine moral knowledge. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's, I mean, I, I believe that many of the people who are involved in the critical social, social justice movement and who have been for many years have genuinely good intentions. Yeah. But their ideas are so warped um, that when they start to get hold of systems, and, you know, the first system they got hold of was the university. We uh, have been familiar with this this way of thinking for well a long time, really. But uh, within the last decade, it's really taken hold in the universities and started started manifesting itself in the uh, kinds of outbursts that you saw at say Ever- Evergreen University out sure. in Washington. Yep. The kinds of things that were discussed um, in uh, the book "The Coddling of the American Mind" by mm-hmm. Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was already bad enough, but then these ideas escaped from the lab, so to speak. Yeah. And this summer they've been running rampant in the streets with, uh, you know, um, protests turning into riots and um, lots of claims about systemic racism and white supremacy uh, that many people find absolutely mind-boggling because these terms are being used in in ways that are unfamiliar outside yeah. of academic circles. But to these folks, this is moral knowledge. And yeah. Yeah, it, the fact that so many people are willing to, to latch onto this, I think shows that there has been a moral vacuum in our culture for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and because we're made in God's image and we live in his world, we can't escape moral claims, evaluative judgments. You know, we all, I think, do. Uh, I think our actions betray that we do believe in value realism. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have a well thought through ethical system or a metaphysical grounding for why we care for persons, why we love justice, why we want to see justice done, why justice should be done and ultimately will be if you're a Christian, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just uh, all these, all these, this festering philosophy that we've had wasn't strong enough to handle all the craziness that hit us. Right. And yeah. You know, what's fascinating to me uh, is in analytic philosophy, in the analytic tradition, moral realism is now more widely embraced than moral anti-realism, right? Um, But this has had absolutely zero impact on culture. 
yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Evergreen. Um, are you familiar with, with Brett Weinstein at all? I, I know of him from that incident. Yeah. I, I don't know a whole lot about him as a person. Yeah. So evolutionary biologist, and I listen to a lot of his stuff. Um, I work with a lot of college uh, wrestlers and, and mm. football players, guys like that, who are, they want to wrestle with this stuff. They just yeah. haven't like, no pun intended, but they want, they want to, to engage in these kind of things. But the people they're hearing from are, are Brett and Eric Weinstein, who are, I love the guys. I think they're very sharp, but they're so wedded to their uh, naturalistic evolutionary theory that they, they can't offer help when it comes to, to ethical stuff. Their solutions sure. aren't, they're not personalistic enough, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not grounded in that. They're evolutionary first. And mm-hmm. this is what happens. Yeah. Okay. Sure. sure. Because we, we didn't control the situation well enough, you know, it's it, talking about experiments, stuff like that. Right. 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 But that, that's why I'm, I'm encouraged by your talk of, of personalism and person first and uh, yeah, moral knowledge. I'm encouraged by it. It's sad looking out at the culture, but you know, I want to be a part of it. You know, I, I hope right. that people listen to this and say, yeah, we need to do that. We need that back. We need a, a good philosophical account, theological account, social account, uh, scientific account. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's um, I, I think that from a moral standpoint, it's exactly what people are hungry for. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a reason why Martin Luther King is the closest thing we have to a secular saint in mm. the United States. Right. Um, his message resonates with people. But what people rarely understand, and, and you, you found this when you were listening to the sermon that you described earlier, King actually was very philosophically sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. He had been philosophically trained. He knew the arguments, not only the metaphysical arguments about the nature of the self, but, I mean, you can see him. He's got sermons where he'll say, this body you are looking at is not me. You can't Mm. see the real me. I'm invisible. I'm spirit. Right? I mean, and how's that going to fly with one of our critical social justice theorists today who want to say that, you know, blackness and whiteness and so forth are parts of people's identities and that's it. Right. right. And it's, that, and it's that, right that here. You, you can are. see it right here. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. King would just say, nope, sorry. I mean, and King took the social identity of blackness seriously. And he, mm-hmm. he tried to make provisions for, um, you know, uh, approaching that in a healthy way, developing what he called a, a feeling of, uh, or a sense of somebodyness um, mm. in, in the black community. Um, and so he wasn't ignorant of the fact that you did have these, these other dimensions of, of human existence that needed to be um, cared for. Yeah. But when it came right down to it, he had a very clear sense of what was essential and what was to use the Aristotelian term, what was accidental. And um, you know, the bodily stuff was more or less accidental. So you're essentially um, a person and you have Mm -hmm. to treat others as persons, regardless of their accidental properties. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know, that, that, sort of message still resonates with people, but when they start to unpack the metaphysical picture behind it, they start to to get a bit wary yeah. because this is not what they've been hearing from the cultural authorities right. who've been telling us, you know, they're apart from perhaps DNA, a certain sort of DNA signature, there's no human nature to speak of. Right. Yeah. And uh, um, that we don't have, free will it's a it's a big illusion and so human agency is 
a kind of an illusion. And of course that has implications for morality. At least mm -hmm. many of us think so. There's obviously a debate about that as there is about everything. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the traditional wisdom here is that, um, well, you know, uh, if you're, if you're not free to do otherwise, you're not morally responsible and mm -hmm. your actions aren't morally significant, right? This is why, this is why we don't hold non-human animals responsible in the same ways that we do human beings. And so yeah. forth, right? you've got to have this kind of rational, uh, rationally guided freedom, uh, if you're going to be a moral agent. So, you know, you start unpacking the metaphysics and, and people start to say, well, I don't know if I can really endorse that. And that's yeah. where contemporary Christian analytic philosophers who are inclined to defend these, these positions could really do a lot of good culturally. Yeah. By helping to explain to folks that you know, these, these views of, of uh, the human being and its powers, faculties, uh, it are, they're, they're much better founded than you would think by just listening to, you know, the, the popular science pontificators and yeah. you get all the press, right? So. Right. Man, this is, this has been awesome. Just, we, we've covered so much, the, the analytic uh, history, phenomenology, a lot of that, uh, personalism. Um, I, I'd love to have you back on sometime to talk a little bit more about this, this, this end point that we're talking about personalism. I think that'd be great. Um, how can people find out about that, that uh, conference, is that invite only conference that you were talking about or? Well, you know, we've, we've done it um, a, a couple of different ways. Uh, we've um, had two of these so far. Uh, and the first one was invitation only, and it was a purely academic affair. Mm -hmm. The second one was actually held at uh, Oaks Christian High School out in Southern California. Um, and it was academically oriented, and that all the speakers were, were academics. Um, but we also had a panel uh, that involved not only academics, but also professionals of various sorts, um, mm. lawyers and, um, you know, doctors and folks from a, a whole bunch of different uh, fields uh, where, you know, they were discussing with us the what, what the disappearance of moral knowledge looks like in their professional sphere. And then we had uh, an audience open to the public. Um, I think there had to be a registration or something, but, um, you know, it was... It, we had lots of folks from the school and from the surrounding community come and um, be audience members. And we got to have, you know, Q&A with, with the audience and that kind of thing. And I think we've talked a little bit about going forward what we might want to do. And we've thought about maybe trying to do two of these annually, one that's more a straight up academic conference and one that's more oriented to a, a broader interested public. Mm -hmm. So it kind of remains to be seen. Um, but on the, uh, on the website, uh, dwillard.org, which is mm -hmm. the, the website um, that hosts much of Dallas's work and information about him and uh, the, the work of the ministry that he left behind and is now being run by family members and some other close friends who are ministry partners with him during his lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you can, if you, if you land on dwillard.org, you can find links to the Moral Knowledge Initiative okay. uh, there. Awesome. And, and then whenever there's a, a symposium or an event, and we have been thinking about doing something virtually um, yeah. in, the, in the next year uh, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that, that may come to fruition. We'll, we'll see what happens. But okay. information will be available on that site. All right. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, also, be on the lookout for, for this. Grab this book, The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. Just came down in price when it first came out. I was like, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to get that. But it just came down, so I was able to grab a copy. Great book, um, and you guys did, did great work uh, in 
in preserving that that legacy of Dallas Willard, the the philosopher as well. Uh, so you. guys like me who have heard so much about him, uh, you know, I could I grabbed a couple articles here and there. There's he's got some good stuff in the the naturalism book in Routledge, but yeah. you know, hungry for I want to hear what this guy has to say. And so it's really great to actually see his mind uh, at work in this book. So again, thank thanks for all the work that you and, and your co-editors have done on this one. Thank you. It was a, a real honor to do it. All right. Well, um, we could talk about this more. Lord willing, someday we will. But for now, uh, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.